Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. In this episode, our guest Keith Matheny and I discuss the complexities of spending time as an entrepreneur, but also still a practicing clinician, the benefit to continuing to practice, the multiple companies he is running, building your clinical advisor board and key opinion leaders, the U.S. healthcare system, the need for healthcare reform, and who should own that, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Keith Matheny. like that we're live uh keith welcome to the podcast thank you so much i'm really excited to be here yeah yeah so um you've appeared on on our medtech money series and and now um you know after after listening to that podcast i had to get you on uh the project medtech one to uh talk a <laughs> lot talk a little about some 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 different stuff yeah no yeah excited so uh, for those who maybe didn't get a chance to listen to the MedTech one, maybe just a, a brief uh, MedTech money one, just a brief intro into to who you are and what you do. Yeah. So Keith Matheny, I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. That's my day job uh, here in North Dallas. I've been out of my training at Vanderbilt oh, over 20 years, just over 20 years, but I'm back here where I grew up pretty much. And uh, like many, many of my colleagues, uh, you know, we go to school till we're 32, 33 years old, straight through, um, but have very little business training. And so that was really the topic with Giovanni on the other podcast was just that is, uh, you know, how does a physician interface all of a sudden with these multi-million dollar businesses? And the short answer is usually not very well. And so kind of talking through that, which I'm sure we'll hit on today too, but that uh, spawned a, a deep interest in the business side of medicine. Uh, and then in parallel with that, I, I do a lot of product and technology development for the ENT space, the ear, nose, and throat space and beyond. Uh, and love it all. I, I really have a, today's a perfect example, Dwayne, of, of my life. And it's a, it's such an enjoyable life. I did two really challenging, uh, satisfying sinus surgeries this morning. Uh, and immediately shifted gears and ran uh, the weekly accountability, accountability team calls for two of my companies, one called Sleep Vigil, one called USENT Partners. Uh, then I'm here to have the privilege of talking about my story and chit-chatting about these topics with you. Um, and, and so it's just, it's a really interesting uh career full of a lot of variety and i love love every aspect of it very very grateful for it yeah that's 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 great um so 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 current date you have you how many companies are you involved in and maybe just a a brief history into the ones you've had you've exited what do you still have ongoing that kind of thing 
Yeah. So in addition to my practice, I think officially right now, the count is five. Uh, so I have to stop and think about that. But, um, but yeah, so four of those are in the healthcare space. And then one randomly is a jewelry company, uh, okay. which was, was spawned uh, just by learning how to 3D print uh, some of my prototypes in my med device companies and making a pair of cufflinks for myself. And okay. Uh, people noticing those and buying them off my wrist and, and suggesting that I, I use those same patterns and other types of, of 3D printed jewelry. And so made rings and bracelets and those types of things. And uh, if I spent any time on that company, it would be even more successful. But now yeah. I just kind of, you know, just let, let customers ask me to make pieces for them. Okay. But the ones that I really do invest a lot of time in uh, are in the healthcare sector. And, and I overlay working on them uh, with my practice, which uh, I like to say I'm still full-time. My partners would fall out of their chairs laughing because uh, <laughs> they feel like they never see me at the office. But I think technically and by the numbers, I'm, I'm probably still 70 to 75% as productive as I was when I was, air quotes, a full-time uh, physician there. Okay. Two of the healthcare companies are in med device. Uh, one is alive and well, and, and surgeons are using the devices uh, probably as we speak. And the other one is about to start its landmark clinical trial so that you know, this time next year um, we'll have those devices available. One is a app. It's a technology that takes data from consumer wearables like an Apple Watch or a Garmin or Fitbit or an Aura Ring. Uh, in our sleep apnea patients, those that have sleep disordered breathing, uh, and takes that data into the physician's chart in a way that they can look at it and make crucial clinical decisions, uh, manage their patients much better than how we've been managing sleep uh, to date, uh, and also provide a new revenue stream for those physicians. There are relatively new CPT codes, procedural codes that physicians can bill insurance companies for. So it's what we always look for, the elevation in patient care that also leads to some new revenue. And then uh, last but certainly not least, probably the biggest of them all is USCNT, which is a formal group purchasing organization built because it's very expensive to practice ear, nose, and throat. Uh, each of us individually as physicians, so not as a practice, as individuals, spends three to $400,000 a year on just so the supplies it takes to practice our craft, sinus balloons and hearing aids, wholesale allergy supplies, uh, things we need to diagnose and treat sleep apnea. There's a lot of capital necessary in ENTs, so scopes and CT scanners. Uh, and so what USCNT is in name is a suite of about 35 contracts directly with these suppliers, the Strikers and the Johnson and Johnsons and the big hearing aid companies uh, providing about 20% savings on all those items because these organizations look at our group as one huge practice. We're hundreds of doctors now purchasing together and cost savings is important, but equally important is uh, what, what that company was really founded upon, which is practice consulting and helping ENT physicians and allergists and pulmonologists now and beyond ENT run better businesses. 
uh, mm-hmm. because we're just not trained in that. So day one, we provide cost savings. And day two through infinity, my team, I can see them rolling their eyes because they hear this from me every week, is identifying ways the practice can improve and certainly uh, add service lines for new revenue or run existing service lines much better to capture better revenue. And mm-hmm. so USCNT is probably the one that takes the most of my time. I have, I'm fortunate and blessed to have incredible teams at all these companies now um, that allow me still to have some time to do doctoring type things. But um, USCNT is one that requires a lot of my personal touch and time. And that's, that's the one that, that I travel the most for, et cetera. But I love it. I absolutely love all this. It's, it's a hectic time in my life, you know, as I'm still practicing, but haven't completely jumped off the cliff and retired from practice and gone straight into business. And so I just have to be efficient and overlay all these, these responsibilities. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, let's take the conversation that way first. Um, you know, balancing being a physician versus being an entrepreneur. Right. And, and I think this is something we see a lot, um, which is there's, there's a lot of physician founders, um, some who want to have no, nothing to do with the company. Some Mm -hmm. want Mm -hmm. to have some, something to do with the company and others want to do it full time. Um, so for you, you know, how do you balance the continuing to be a practicing physician? Um, versus being an entrepreneur and not totally letting go of, of your babies, right? Yeah. Great question. And, and probably on any given day, I'm, I'm doing a good job or a terrible job at, at that balance. Uh, certainly if you ask some of my family members and close friends, right? Right. <laughs> but uh, I think the short answer is um, it helps me. Just like Let's start with the patients, right? So patient care is is probably the most important thing that I do. And when we have dedicated patient appointments, what I love about that, because my phone and email are constantly, you know, going crazy. I think I have six or seven truly actionable emails, mm-hmm. receive hundreds and hundreds and hundreds a day. Um, but that 15 minutes, 30 minutes that I'm scheduled with that patient is protected. And really, the only thing that would interrupt that is if my nurse came in and said there was some uh, significant medical emergency. And so I think I've extrapolated that pattern to my business. Uh, Like I mentioned, I just uh, before this recording had a a couple hour long calls that are sacred every week that we do. And everybody shows up, if at all possible, even when you're on vacation um, to I call them the accountability calls. And it's a protected time when no one is scheduling anything else. And we, we talk about what we accomplished last week. We talk about what we plan to accomplish this week. And did we get all that stuff done? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the same thing as having dedicated time. Uh, of course, it bleeds into, as, as those in leadership positions know, all of your individual team members want one-on-one time. And so um, you have to be careful not to do the meeting seven times before you actually do the meeting or do it again seven times later because somebody missed the meeting and just really driving people into the scheduled time uh, because there are only 168 hours in a week. I know that because certainly as a resident, I, I 
had one week where I worked 140 of them in Vanderbilt. <sighs> and so, um, while that's a lot of time, it is a finite uh, mm -hmm. entity. And so you really have to, I say overlay, and that's true, but it's really having, even if it's five minute uh, snippets, a protected time to do the task at hand and really give your uh, focused effort to them. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, you know, it's something that I see a lot of um, physicians try to balance, right? Um, and I think one of the main reasons they try to balance that is the insight into the trenches of the healthcare system is really important, right? I mean, yeah. we talk we talk to a lot of founders um, who aren't physicians, right? It might be physician supported, right? But but mm -hmm. it's engineer led or it's a business person, right? And a lot of times, I really encourage them to, hey just make sure if you're understanding the problem you're solving, make sure you're understanding the upstream and the downstream, because there could be something within there that you just don't quite understand. That's critical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that's and a critical so, insight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, that's quite frankly, one of my fears about okay. simplifying my life and, mm -hmm. and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to hang up patient care right now is it's, it's absolutely crucial to be touching patients, to be utilizing existing technologies and services and figure out how something could be improved or what we lack. Uh, I often say this, and this is the truth. Um, you know, I, again, I'm surrounded by brilliant people in all of these companies now. Um, so I'm far and away have better polymer chemists in my device companies than my understanding of chemistry. Far and away have better, uh, for sure, software people in sleep vigil than I, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start. But what I can bring and what I do is the touching the patient aspect. What do we need? So many times, you know, early on before I started my own ventures, I think the way I dipped my toe in the water was spending a lot of time with the upstream teams at the strategics in ENT. And, you know, the engineers got together and they built some beautiful uh, technology, but where I, I've always had the talent, if you call it that, or I'm enough of a jerk to just say, okay, that's great, but how am I going to actually use that in a patient? You know, whether it's too expensive or something that's never going to get a CPT code, a reimbursement code, or something that, while well, that accomplishes what it's designed to do is is tough even in the best surgeon's hands so what is it going to be in the average person or even someone with you know let's i hate to say it tactfully you know substandard or sub average surgical skills um you know that's that's the value that i think a physician can add there's a lot of things that a physician can detract from business um which we can talk about those too but i think you're so spot on even someone that feels like they understand a clinical need, unless you're really day in, day out seeing patients, I don't know that you can uh, fully design something the way that a physician can, if you harness them. Mm -hmm. So um, this decision to stop practicing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, potentially, I mean, how I'm, I'm curious on, you've, you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but 
when did you start thinking about this? Um, we understand why you continue to practice, right? Um, but 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 how much of that is is a constant like wave of hey, I got to be done. No, I can still do it. Hey, I got to be done. No, I can still do it. I'm just curious. And and at what point did did you did you start thinking about it? You know, was it yeah. Yeah. one company in? Was it multiple? Yeah, I want to be real transparent here. It's it probably multiple. You know, uh, as most of of your audience knows, every overnight thing, you know, all these companies have kind of matured at the same time. So people have seen me come on the scene, if you will, over the last year to eighteen months. But all of them have been in the works for no less than ten or fifteen years, right? Uh, as again, those of us that have done this know, they all take this longer and longer. Um, and so when these were conceptual ideas, number one, it was easy for me to manage and work on things maybe a couple hours a day or when I had time, uh, but they were not monetized at all. So I knew it wasn't even an issue that to, to support my family, um, to save for retirement, those types of things. It, it really didn't even cross my mind that I wouldn't continue to practice. But then as it got busier and busier, and even though uh, none of these companies, uh, we've taken on meaningful investment in several of them, but uh, there haven't been any exits yet. Um, there are still the economic pressures for me to keep my day job. Uh, and so that now, Dwayne, weighs into to my decision. You have two, two kids in college. One is uh, about to head to medical school. So I still have those kind of ongoing costs, just real life things. Uh, you know, physicians like me that treat quality of life diseases. You know, I specifically do rhinology, which is sinus and allergy and, and dealing with sleep. You know, during COVID, when so many people economically were hit so hard, so many people were out of work and lost their health benefits, those kind of disease states just went to the back burner. And so we as the physicians saw our incomes drop 60, 70%. Uh, and, and many ENT physicians actually had their doors closed for months at a time until we really figured out kind of the confines within which we could safely practice with COVID because the virus lives in the nose. And we were very, very afraid at first internationally to practice our craft um, and risk spreading the, the virus even further. So there's all those kind of personal economic decisions that go into it um, on even a, a further personal note, you know, there's so many days that I admittedly look in the mirror and think, yeah, am I doing any of these roles halfway decently? You know, um, right. Am I, am I as prepared to lead this call right now as I need to be? Um, am I, you know, this is, this is something am I up to date on my charting uh, mm -hmm. in the office. Um, am I, am I being a good partner to my medical partners, those types of things, and, you know, there's, there's times that you think, gosh, I, I need to simplify just so I can, I can do my best to whatever I choose to do. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, it, again, being totally transparent here, there, there is some inner turmoil. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's more significant. Yeah. So I, I think about this balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's anytime someone can share a personal story like this. I mean, that's really the goal of the podcast, right? Is for entrepreneurs to hear that 
hey, other people are having the same internal battle or the doing the same type of internal gymnastics to rationalize, you know, whatever they're doing. And so um, I think this is this is really insightful. Um, so another question I get a lot too, you, you know, if you're if you're a um, a founder and you and it's not physician led, right? Maybe you're an engineer, you have a business person, you're you're building out your clinical team. There is this idea, this clinical advisory board, right? There is this idea that you have to have people from Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Texas Medical Center, Mass General, you name it, you know, one of the big institutions. And I, I certainly understand the idea of of key opinion leader. I guess my pushback to to startups sometimes is, is that your main customer though? I mean, are you selling some specialized cardiovascular stent or are you selling something that's going to be used at community hospitals, right? So I'm just, I'm just curious uh, on your take on this and, and, and understanding the physician landscape. I mean, if, if you're selling a product that is, is maybe used, you know, 80% of it's in community hospitals. How much does some key opinion leader, because that term is also very vague in my opinion. I don't understand right. that as right. much either. Um, you know, how much does that matter? And, and, and how do you build that clinical advisory team? Gosh, that's a great question. And uh, having spoken about my story many, many times, that hasn't really directly come up. And I'm very happy to address that issue. Okay. So in the in the ear, nose, and throat space, um, we can all look back to a company named Acclarent, A-C-C-L-A-R-E-N-T. Mm -hmm. They exited, I believe, 2011. J&J &J bought them, uh, you know, just under 800 million. And that company commercialized balloon sinuplasty. So the transition of the angioplasty balloon catheter out of the heart, uh, into the, the sinuses, into the nose. And that's great technology, right? Mm -hmm. It made a very invasive, uh, procedure that was difficult to recover from for patients, uh, had never really thoroughly been studied as far as long-term outcomes and made it really simple, but boy, it was polarizing in the NT space. So when that procedure was launched, 2006, 2007, uh, by Josh McCower, uh, the head of Stanford School of Biodesign now, uh, inventor of many, many technologies, most importantly, the Coravine, uh, the way to, to tap into a very expensive bottle of wine without having to open the thing. Uh, the medical stuff is much less important than that. But the, uh, they chose, I'm sitting here talking to you today because of what the leadership team chose to do. So I'm so grateful to them, but they chose to come out to the community physician instead of those in academia. And I don't know if, if we should have them, we should call them real quick and see what their thoughts are 15, 16 years later. Uh, boy, it, it caused, uh, I, don't, I don't know what, what level of uh, cursing we can do on your podcast here, Dwayne, but let's it's say it, it, caused a, it caused a big, big shit storm yeah. because um, in coming out to community physicians like me to launch this technology, 
um, they really ignored those leaders in our field who are excellent surgeons. They're the folks that we all learned under. They're the folks we listen to even still today at national meetings. Um, but they felt really uh, scorned. Uh, that's how the, the academic world felt. And so the impact on the technology was very negative. Uh, the impact on those that were early adopters of this technology was, was likewise very negative. Uh, I think the term back then was, or the phrase was, balloons are for children and clowns, and I guess cardiologists, uh, but, but certainly not for a self-respecting sinus surgeon, right? And so it, it took every bit of a decade for that hangover to wear off. That being said, uh, and so subsequent companies, including mine, have, have learned from that and, and tried to have a parallel path where we really embrace the, the leadership in the academic community, but we embrace those of us out in community practice. But going back to my experience, because the Eclarent leadership team chose to do that, it spawned this entire uh, part of my life where I, I helped develop and, and consult on other new technologies. Coming out to community physicians like me gave me a chance to participate in those national meetings, gave me a chance to have a voice uh, on panels, what my perspective was, not just what the the folks at the medical schools thought about this and that. It, it gave me a chance to participate in clinical trials. It gave me a chance to uh, consult on upstream products. And that ignited my passion and it taught me so much about how to do this. Mm -hmm. So I think the direct answer to your question with that backdrop is both mm -hmm. types of KOLs are necessary. Uh, the leadership at these medical schools in the ENT space, there, there are hundreds of really brilliant people in medical schools teaching our future ENT doctors. But the ENTs uh, are all, the, those of us out in the community, we were all, you know, in the top of our medical school classes, and there's a bunch of amazing people out in community practice too. Mm -hmm. And so at, at my device companies, we embrace both. Okay. Um, we have both involved. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you answered that because I think it's, like I said, it's, it's something that comes up with a lot of startups that we're working with on our consulting practice and advisory practice. And, you know, thinking about these, these clinical boards and who we want and, and, you know, who do we reach out to? It's, it's, it's sometimes difficult. And even, you know, back to my clinical trial days, uh, we'd have this conversation with with folks as well, where they say, okay, well, great, you, you're going to have five clinical sites. Have you picked those yet? No, but we want, you know, if it was a breast cancer diagnostic one, it was, we want MD Anderson, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, and John Hopkins, mm -hmm. right? Sure. And it's like, great, you know, and I, I, I respect that. Uh, do they see the highest amount of, of breast cancer patients, right? And, and if the answer is, not yes, then then maybe we want a couple of those and, and a couple of high volume ones. And maybe those high volume ones are are somewhere else that isn't one of those ones, you know, so even th helping them think through that as well and just getting, oh, absolutely. you know, a little more diversity there. We can learn so much from U.S. Oncology, which my, my uncle was one of the founders, uh, you know, Welsh Carson put that company together in 1993, mm -hmm. urging three large oncology practices together 
uh, in Virginia, my uncle's practice with Texas Oncology and Rocky Mountain Cancer Centers in Denver. And they immediately use that scale for a lot of things like building a GPO, such as mm-hmm. what I have with USENT, but for doing clinical trials. And so many of the ways that we treat um, major cancers, now breast and colon and things of that, that magnitude, came out of the trials of the high volume oncologist in U.S. oncology mm-hmm. and not just in the Anderson and Sloan Kettering and all the usual places that you would think of. Uh, because of just that. The other thing too about the academic centers is that's the places uh, for the strange cases, the one-offs to go. And so that when you're designing a clinical trial that can even skew your results. Mm-hmm. What I, I think it's always important for all of us to remember, certainly those in the academic community is that the patients almost always come to a community physician, whatever specialty it is first. Right. And so, um, most of those patients we are treating first line for better, for worse. Mm-hmm. And so the folks that, that make it to these large centers aren't exactly a, a statistically even cross section of the community. Mm-hmm. And so yet another reason, even from clinical trial design to include some community centers. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I don't, I don't want to open up too much of a can of worms here. But uh, more than I, you I, already have here. More right. than <laughs> I'm doing my best here. Uh, so so I, I ask almost all the physicians who come on the podcast um, about the U.S. healthcare system. Right. And, and it's not to say it's bad or, or good or, or, or what, whatever the, the opinion is. Right. I mean, um, generally, it falls under it's the best healthcare system in the world. Um, but it has its issues, right? It has its right. flaws. And, and, and so the, the, the main question just comes from when, when, I, when I work with clients in Europe and they're saying, hey, you know, I want to take my product. And especially now where they're not on the market in Europe, a lot of startups are coming to market here in the U.S. because of the UMDR. And that's a whole separate thing. Right, but right. when they come here and they say, well, great. So, so tell me about commercialization. And I go, buckle up because we got, <laughs> we got a lot to cover here, right? And so, yeah, um, you know, we talk about reimbursement. You mentioned CPT codes. We talk mm-hmm. about who's going to be, who's paying for this. Is is it a hospital? Is it a physician? Is it a patient? You know, all this kind of stuff. Maybe just start with some some basics. Just the U.S. healthcare system. Your 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 thoughts on it. Some some different issues we have to deal with with that. Um, I'm just curious on 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 your yeah. thoughts about it. Yeah. So of course, you know, great question. Uh, mm-hmm. Big big question, and so many different angles to take. Maybe maybe the. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind, I'd like to describe what I do in my practice, and then okay. maybe we can we can talk about how it could be uh, extrapolated more largely. Yeah. So in my rhinology practice, again, sinus and allergy, I do the lion's share of my surgeries now in my office. And I use the word surgery liberally. Um, mm-hmm. most, most of my office procedures where I use the balloon and other elegant technology that's been developed, drug-eluting stents and radio frequency devices and cryotherapy devices, ways that we treat patients with chronic sinus and allergy disease. 
Um, even if I'm doing it under anesthesia, I can do that in my office. When I do that, several levers get pulled. First of all, uh, a clarent, the company I mentioned earlier, and a company that now belongs to Stryker named Intellis with an E, worked hard 11, 12 years ago to get different CPT codes that allowed differential reimbursement for using balloon technology in the office versus in the hospital. And very much like endometrial ablation in the women's health uh, sector 20 years ago, the attempt was to drive uh, patients into the office for their care for these relatively straightforward procedures and eliminate the cost of the hospital. And so fast forwarding 15, 20 years, now the cases that I routinely do, I did my two this morning in the hospital for a variety of reasons, mostly other medical conditions, um, more so than, than technology reasons. But um, every case that I do in my office is sinus case. I save the system, the payer, whoever that may be, anywhere from fourteen to $24,000 every time. Wow. Uh, so that's, that's in the form of a facility fee. And that's typically paid 70 or 80% by the payer, 20 to 30% by the patient. So in review, if I'm using a balloon, for example, I as the professional and being reimbursed at a higher rate, and the reason that is because when we were working on those RVUs and those types of things, we knew now we had to build and the cost of the supplies. I mentioned the US ENT, each of us is spending three or $400,000 a year. While it's great to have this transition into the office, it's made it a heck of a lot more expensive. And so um, the physician is making more, the patient is paying less, the payer is paying less, and the, the patient is getting the exact same uh, procedure by the same person. If they're under anesthesia, in my case, it's the same anesthesiologist they would have down the street. To me, that's healthcare reform. I, I eliminated probably 60 or 70% of the cost of that case. Mm -hmm. The only loser in that scenario is the hospital or the ASC. And I believe that's on them to backfill the operating room that I used to occupy. Keith, so, real quick, when you say yeah. ASC, what does that mean? So ambulatory surgery center. Perfect. Thank you. So an outpatient surgery center. Yep. And so uh, what I like about that is it's healthcare reform being done by the people that should be doing it, meaning the people that have skin in the game, rather than it being legislated, mandated from on high, um, from state and federal um, legislators. It's being done by the people down in the trenches. And we're being responsible and using resources correctly. Um, so I say that now to answer your question is when I see um, that much savings, you know, if, if let's say some brilliant senator or congressman uh, introduced a bill that, that cut healthcare spending 0.01%, while that would recommend probably represent billions of dollars, they would build a statue to that individual uh, in DC. And yet, 
what I just said, save 60 or 70% of the cost. And how many more, not every single procedure, but how many more procedures could be done in a much more cost-effective setting. And so that's what I try to do as a clinician in my own way, right? Um, helping in my little corner of the U.S. healthcare system save costs. And so many of my colleagues in ENT and in other specialties are doing the same. Now then we look larger when we talk about developing technologies. So my device companies, I have two now, but hopefully when it's all said and done, we'll have 15 or 20. Um, they're all technologies that foster that transition of care that make things easier to do in a less acute setting. Um, the, the GPO that we have at USENT, it makes it more economically feasible for a physician to practice in the office, right? When a, when a widget is 20% cheaper, that physician can then put that 20% savings into their other practice and remain independent and not be cobbled up by a hospital system, which then, uh, let's say, for example, and this is going to offend several, but this is the reality. Let's say some hospital system came in and, and hostily bought my practice. And they would expect me to march all these cases that I've done the last decade or so back into the hospital. I mean, as busy as I am, even though, again, I'm not as busy as I used to be, uh, that would be, I don't even know the math, but let's just do an average of $15,000 per case now that the payer and the patient are back paying into the system unnecessarily, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, simply because the hospital bought my practice to get business back into the hospital. And so we're all at fault. I don't want to sit here and make it sound like the hospital systems are the, the bad actors here. As good as the U.S. healthcare system is at delivering technology and procedures to patients, um, we all, the physicians, the payers, the hospitals, have, have inculcated way too much cost. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, again, I'm not in the trenches like you are, but, but from, from my perspective, right. It's the best, it's the best healthcare system in terms of if you are sick, there's no better place to be in the world. Right. Um, right. however, there is a lot of fat within our healthcare system. Right. And there's a lot of people, right. there's a lot of middle people, middlemen. There's a lot of people who, um, fail to look out for the patient. And, and that's a problem. And, and, and I think they think that it's just delivering really good health care. But to your point, it's really good health care with, with, and, and if you could take unneeded costs out, why wouldn't you? Right? right. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And, and while we live in, in, a free market society pretty much um and we want we all want certainly those that are listening to this type of podcast want the ability uh, to earn a good living and have return on our investment um, i still believe and i'm proof that you can do well financially whilst trimming this fat you know, mm -hmm. in my scenario the only direct loser is the hospital i'm sure they well I'm sure I know uh, doing that, okay. that leader, the leadership and yeah, they're, they're doing okay. But at the same time, the leadership and, and the partners and some of my physician owned joint ventures, um, 
you know, they're not happy about the loss in revenue from, from my migration of cases. But I think that's on, again, these, these facilities to reinvent themselves and to backfill those, those empty operating rooms, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. with other lines of, of business. Yeah. And so yeah. the fat can be trimmed and, and each person can still have the same degree of profitability. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we just talked about it. I think it was the podcast that we released um, today. It was, um, let me double check. So the podcast we released today was, yeah, with Mary Yost from uh, the Sage Group. So she's an expert in peripheral arterial disease. And, you know, she had brought up on the podcast um, that a healthcare system the healthcare, the healthcare behemoths in our country are becoming monopolies. And anytime there's a monopoly, generally that's not a great thing for the consumer or it's the anti-competitive, US. right? It's anti-competitive, yeah. right? And and we're starting to see that a little bit. I mean, um, across the country and in various areas. And I think if any of us, no matter where you are right now, probably listening to this, if you are in the U.S. I guarantee within an hour drive of you, there is some behemoth of a hospital system taking over um, and buying up these these little individual practices. And, and, and that's not a good thing necessarily. Um, and so she had brought that up on our podcast and that's kind of mm-hmm. what you're hitting at here. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, it brings up a whole lot of issues. Um, one that I've, I've seen firsthand in, in meeting with physicians around the country. I've been privileged to now see thousands of practices as they consider joining USCNT. And, you know, what one of the, the best things about practicing medicine is your autonomy and your ability to do what you think is best for your patient. And I, I think some of these large entities really get dangerously close with flirting for non-physicians making medical decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, people talk about this all the time with the third-party payers, where essentially the person approving or rejecting something that you're trying to get prior authorized, the physician is not really making the decision. It's really the decision of that person at the insurance company. By saying yes or saying no, they're deciding whether the patient needs treatment or not, or they're right. telling him what. I think at its essence, that person is actually being the physician, right? They're making the medical decision. Right. And so I, I just hear that's probably the biggest concern. It's even the biggest concern as physicians in the ENT space consider private equity role, right? So yes, we face the looming, uh, you know, whether we need to be acquired by a hospital debate all the time, but we, we have other options too. And a lot of private equity groups are now rolling up the ENT space as they've rolled up many other uh, medical spaces over the last 20 or 30 years, Welsh Carson being uh, one of the best at doing so and building amazing companies. And that's, that's what physicians fear the most is that they're going to be beholden to the business guys uh, on which technology they can use on uh, what how they spend their time, whether they can be in clinic, whether they can be in the operating room and in the loss of that. And so 
what what I am all about, really, what the other angle, I guess, to look at making it more efficient and inexpensive to practice, having office-based technology, all of those things, my intention is to help physicians have the choice to remain independent, or if they choose to partner with private equity, with the hospital system, they're making that decision on their own terms, mm-hmm. not because they're failing in business. Uh, not because their entire referral base will dry up. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a tough market from that standpoint. And yeah. you're right, once it becomes anti-competitive, you know, who, who's the watchdog? Right. And, and you know, I think, too, um, for those startups who maybe aren't at commercialization phase yet, uh, wait, wait until you go through a value analysis committee for the first time, right? And, and, and you think you have, you have all the physicians, you have all the nurses, you have all the clinicians bought into your product, mm-hmm. and they're still hang up. And, and your thought is, how is this possible? How can I not, how, how am I still having trouble getting this hospital to purchase the product. Yeah. And then that you person is real- deciding. That person <laughs> right. is making medical decisions, right? Uh, right. I can tell you've been through it many times. I mean, if something costs even just a small increment more, uh, those committees can be hard to convince because those are not, uh, they're looking at it just from an economic perspective, right? They're not looking at it from a patient experience, from an outcome. I mean, they are, right? I don't mean to gloss over it, but but the, what trumps everything is the um, the cost. Well, Doctor X, we're paying fifty dollars for this right now. Why in the world would we pay fifty nine dollars? Uh, you know how much that will cost this hospital this year. You know, uh, instead of looking at it holistically. Oh yeah. At what's yeah. better for the patients? Right, and then I think the most ethically uh, challenging one, at least for me is when your technology starts to eliminate procedures and and then there's pushback there because mm-hmm. it's very clear that it's a it's a hit on revenue and that's mm-hmm. a problem and that's a that's a big that's a big ethical problem i think in my eyes it's a it's a big one um you know we certainly have some of those dilemmas in the ent space uh, you know when i think about a disease state called nasal polyposis it's a a subset of chronic sinus patients, about 20 to 25% develop inflammatory nasal polyps. So that's not the same as colon polyps, which can be precancerous, and that's a whole different ball of wax. But we have a lot of treatments, either topical local drug delivery, uh, or the pharma companies have come up with six, seven, ten biologics. And it's hard to watch any primetime show without seeing an advertisement for some of those. And, and what that does potentially is eliminate surgery, right? So that should be a good thing, but it's not always viewed as a good thing by the surgeon, by the hospital where the surgery is done because they lost that revenue opportunity. And so I like to think that at least from a physician standpoint, um, we're always thinking what's best for the patient and we, we need to reinvent and find other ways to generate our living. Uh, but yeah, that is a, an ethical, um, dilemma. 
Yeah. When, when technology eliminates the source of revenue, you said it eliminates procedures, but really what you mean is eliminates the source of revenue. Correct. Yeah. 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 yeah no, it's, um, it's something that, uh, is, is probably, it, I, I get it. It's difficult because people think they've solved something and then they want to milk that as long as they can. And, and I, I understand that aspect of it, but at the same time, you have to constantly innovate if i mean if if tomorrow someone doesn't need your services why why try to slow that down you just try to reinvent yourself be, exactly. be you know it's the, the famous business book you read at the airport who moved my cheese right yeah just staying nimble and agile and always pivoting i mean what works mm -hmm. today yeah may be totally irrelevant tomorrow yeah. Instead of crying about that or trying to prevent progress, just figure out where you fit into the future mm -hmm. and adapt yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. Cool. Um, Keith, is, is, is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you, you wanted to touch on? I feel like we covered a lot and uh, uh, <laughs> you gave me some really good answers and we covered some really difficult topics and, and I just appreciate your your transparency with them because um, sometimes that's not easy to get. No, no, uh, I'm really pleased with all the, the topics we touched on. I, I guess I would just wrap up with again, saying how grateful I am to, to have this hybrid career of entrepreneurial things that are very successful now. Um, and all of the hundreds and hundreds of people that have given me a hand up and protected me and given me advice to be here. Of course, my existing teams that do the real work all day, every day, um, while I'm hopping from role to role. Um, but again, I, I guess for the physician entrepreneurs who might be listening, um, it's part of it. And I, what I love the most about where I am now is, is people hearing my story and reaching out guidance like I was 10 or 15 years ago. And so I welcome that. I, I love having discussions. And I, all I would say is that, you know, physicians, we, we are talented people as a group, but we have our limitations, certainly in our education. And so I encourage everyone to load the boat to, to surround yourselves with, with folks and not to be out on an island by yourself where you feel like you have to run everything and do everything but uh, you know recognize what you can contribute to an effort but realize you need a team to do it and uh, but if you do that it's really rewarding how it ends up you you mentioned row the boat so i got to give the shout out to uh PJ Flick, I think is his name. He's the head coach for Minnesota now. He was at Central yeah. Michigan uh, yeah. for, and, and a, a Mac school. And so I used to, I, I, I went to Toledo. Um, so we were a Mac school yeah. as well. And so uh, I, I really like PJ Fleck. I root for him, you know, 11 times out of the year until they play Ohio State. And then I don't. <laughs> um, but uh, I love I love his energy. And I love that saying, row the boat, you know, and he's, he's kind of yeah. taken that with him where he went. And so it's yeah. a great phase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome, Keith. We'll hang on for a minute. We'll chat offline, but but thanks so much for doing this. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Tony. Yep. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. 
If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.